from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This is Politically Georgia. I'm Tia Mitchell. President Biden makes an emotional phone call to the parents of Kennedy Sanders, one of three Georgia Army reservists killed in a drone attack in Jordan. I'm Greg Bluestein. Governor Kemp will sign the bill that defines anti-Semitism as part of the state's hate crimes law today. It's a moment long awaited by those who have fought for the measure for years. I'm Bill Nygut. Fair Fight, the political and advocacy organization founded by Stacey Abrams, was once flush with donor cash. But massive legal bills from court battles over voting rights is forcing Fair Fight to lay off staff and narrow its mission. Plus, special prosecutor Nathan Wade settles his divorce, freeing Fonnie Willis from potentially damaging testimony in the case. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Greg and Bill, you guys are coming to me for once. I can't wait to welcome you to D.C. later today. Yeah, it's in a really, you're you're the, a co-chair, right, of this big congressional dinner annual event that you've invited all of us to come to tonight. It's really going to be fun to be together. Yes, it's the Washington Press Club Foundation. I'm secretary and dinner co-chair this year. So, Greg, you ready to eat some good food and see a bunch of lawmakers? I'm ready. I know there's going to be a slew of Georgia lawmakers at this event, and there'll be lawmakers from all across the country. So, yeah, we're looking forward to it. It'll be fun. It will. So that is going to be great. But first, we've got to get to really a pretty packed show news-wise. So we'll start out with some of the latest updates from here in Washington, where President Biden is vowing to avenge the death of three Georgia Army reservists who died in Jordan during a drone attack over the weekend. Now, one of those soldiers was Specialist Kennedy Sanders. And our colleague, Joe Kovac, who is our new Macon Bureau Chief at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, he was in Waycross with the Sanders family when President Biden called Kennedy's parents to speak to her. Let's hear a little bit from that conversation. We're promoting her posthumously to sergeant. Oh, wow. That is the best news I've heard today. Thank you so much. You don't know how much that means to us. Oh, well, I tell you what, it means a lot to, a lot to me. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that's so wonderful about that moment, Tia, despite this extraordinary grief that the parents are feeling, is that Sean Sanders, uh, the father uh, who we hear, uh, apparently when his daughter decided to become a reservist, uh, said to her, um, you're going to keep working uh, you enter, you know, in a low military grade, but you're going to keep working. I know you have it in you to rise in the ranks. And so President Biden, he he said in Joe Kovacs' wonderful story 
um, that the president fulfilled a father's promise in that call. Yeah, I think it was so, you know, Biden has this reputation for being the, quote, consoler in chief that kind of transcends him as president. We know he's had a lot of loss in his own life, losing his wife and his daughter and then, of course, losing his son, Bo. And um, he's really good in these moments. Again, I think that's something that his critics don't like to acknowledge, but he's really good at relating to people at their time of loss. Again, to me, that kind of is very separate from his role as president. But when you're president, you are often talking to people who have experienced loss because, again, whether it's being, you know, the commander in chief of the military or, you know, dealing with elected officials or prominent people or, quite frankly, tragedies like mass shootings, you're often called to respond and have words to say. And anyone who's like had to console just a friend or a family member knows that sometimes it's hard to find the right words to say. But it seems like Biden is pretty good at this. Wouldn't you agree, Greg? Yeah, I mean, this is part of the reason, of course, is he he can relate because of the deaths of his own children. And so he brings that up often throughout these conversations. But this was a behind-the-scenes look at those types of conversations. Sometimes we hear about it secondhand, you know, from people who've gotten those calls. But Joe Kovac Jr. was, uh, was able to get into the house with the family, with their permission, of course, and video this entire conversation. It's about six and a half minutes long, the whole thing. And, you know, maybe there's onions in my house when I, when I was watching it. But man, the tears were the tears were flowing from my eyes as I listened to this extraordinary um, this extraordinary phone call uh, of of this family trying to grieve the, the death uh, of their loved one. And the, the president saying, hey, you know, I can relate. Here's here's how it will get easier. You might not believe it now but it will get easier. And by the way, if you're ever in DC, I mean it, come by. I mean, just just extraordinary. Um, Tia, we should also point out, of course, that um, there, uh, of the three killed, one was already a sergeant, uh, but the other specialist, um, uh, like uh, 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 Specialist Sanders, is Brianna Moffat, and the president also uh, gave her a promotion to sergeant posthumously. So again, an, as you both point out, another sign of Biden's really uh, amazing human touch. And I think what's interesting about this from a political point of view in this election year, Tia and Greg, is we remember that in 2020, with the pandemic in full force, Biden could not get out on the road and do the kinds of interpersonal uh, visits, uh, uh, events that have throughout his entire career marked who he is as a politician. It's one of his specialties is how he relates to real uh, uh, people. And so 2020, you know, he was uh, uh, attacked mercilessly by Republicans for staying in his basement. Um, 2024, we're going to see, we hope, think, the Biden who really knows how to work people. Absolutely. And I think that we're probably going to see more of Biden, even as in relation to these three fallen soldiers. Um, I think, number one, I want to say the name of the third 
um, reservist who was killed. His name is Sergeant William Jerome Rivers. Again, Specialist Moffitt, Specialist, well, now Sergeants Moffitt, Sergeant Sanders will go ahead and use their new title. Sergeant Rivers were all based at Fort Moore, which is near Columbus, Georgia. Um, two of them were also from Georgia, um, and they were Army reservists in Jordan. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about some of the, the national security implications or international implications. But um, we do expect President Biden to continue to honor the families. Um, we were trying to get more information about when their remains will be returned to America. For example, we expect full military honors, um, you know, and I think it. I think we should also point out the AJC has been writing about the outpouring of support for these families, not just from the White House, but from the local communities um, where where these reservists live. There's just been a lot of it. it, I think it shows how America comes together, particularly to support our troops, particularly when the troops give the ultimate sacrifice. Wouldn't you say so, Greg? Yeah, and and you're right. Uh, there has been this outpouring, and we saw it at the state capitol. We've seen it around the, the around around Georgia. We've seen it really around the nation, um, because you know, as we talked about earlier this week, a lot of people have no idea that there are reservists based in Jordan, in Syria, in Iraq. Still, you know, people people have moved on from these conflicts in their own minds, even though there are still young people fighting for our country um, all over these hotspots, these, these conflict areas. And there are international ramifications to what is happening, right? Uh, there is that concern that the Israel-Hamas war could lead to a, uh, a, a more regional conflict right now. And we've seen immediate, we've seen immediate uh, aftermath, you know, the immediate aftershock of, of all this with the head of Iran's revolutionary guards and Iran backed this this militant group that that, that launched the uh, the drone attack on these reservists in Jordan, we we seen them say, "Hey, Tehran is not looking for war." Uh, we've seen that militia group that was supposedly behind this attack, which officials think is behind this attack, say that they're stopping their war making capabilities. That they're they're sort of disbanding that unit, that military unit, after Joe Biden told reporters yesterday that he has decided on his. Response. He just decided on how to respond to the attacks. So we're seeing an international aftermath right now. Right. And I I think that's a good way to kind of segue to the bigger, you know, the implications um, from, like you said, internationally, is that there is, at the end of the day, the U.S., when soldiers are killed and it's not an accident, this was a drone strike. Um, the U.S. tends to respond in force. And and there is that balance. And President Biden spoke about it yesterday when reporters asked him, because he had said immediately after the attack, he would hold those responsible to account in in basically in our own time, in our own way. Um, but he also told reporters yesterday he had decided how to do so, but was sensitive about ratcheting up um, the conflict in the Middle East. Nobody wants to see war. 
um, nobody wants things to kind of get worse. Nobody wants to see more bloodshed, particularly of American soldiers. So it's like, what is that balance when you you don't again, it's not the way of the United States to let our soldiers be killed and not avenge their deaths. I mean, I think we should just say that plainly, like we're not going to sugarcoat it. You kill us. America comes back and says there are repercussions. Maybe not. Maybe not. Eye for eye. But sometimes, oftentimes there there is, you know, bloodshed on the other side of that. And that's part of military strategy. That's been part of military strategy for forever. But how do you do that? How do you say you? it's not okay to kill our people without, again, possibly risking further mm-hmm. bloodshed down the line? Yeah, and yeah, that, is, that is exactly part of that, that international calculus that President Biden is facing right now. And he's getting attacked uh, uh, you know, by some Republicans, not all, but some Republicans who want a more, a firmer attack. But you're right. There is that balance. You don't want to. The U.S. is not looking for a full on war with Iran and Iran is signaling throughout this entire conflict that they're not looking for a full on war with the U.S. There are are naval squadrons and fleets stationed in the Red Sea area to provide cover um, uh, for U.S. ground troops and also, of course, um, for for Israel. But the problem and and one of the challenges here. Or it's a number of Iranian-backed proxies in Yemen, yeah. in Jordan, in Iraq. So it's not a state-on-state confrontation. It is a number of proxies. But again, this—I mean, this—this this was a, a surprise move with the, the Iranian-linked militia that the Pentagon said was behind this attack. Just surprisingly announced that it was suspending military operations in Iraq. So it's a clear effort to signal a de-escalation. We don't know if this is true, right. though, you know, just because they say it. But uh, but but also we know that President Biden has decided there will be some sort of uh, countermeasure taken. We just don't know what it is. And he's not going to tell us what it is until it happens. And Bill, it sounds like Iran is saying we do not want the smoke with America. What can we do to de-escalate this? Um, and they're trying, but it might be a little bit too late. What do you think? Well, I I think, you know, as Greg has just pointed out, you know, we, we never know what to make of anything that the Iranians say um, uh, because they, of course, have for decades backed militant groups like the one that launched this drone attack. Um, uh, so we'll have to wait and see uh, what happens on their side. On, on the United States side, um, we talked yesterday about the fact that President Biden has a series of potential responses he'll have to decide among. Um, Probably the one that is most concerning to many people and potentially most explosive is a direct attack in Iran itself. We don't even know if that would accomplish much more than um, it certainly wouldn't take out this this group that uh, launched the drone. But as I mentioned on the show yesterday, President Reagan was faced with choices about how to deal with a response to a military uh, overt act by Iran way back in the 80s. And uh, one of his uh, possible choices was we're going to attack Iran directly in some way. Instead, he decided to go to offshore oil platforms and um, other off and, and a couple of ships so that it wasn't quite as direct 
a an attack on the country itself. So mm-hmm. we'll just see what uh, the president decides. Well, we're, of course, going to stay on this. And of course, our thoughts are with the families um, of those killed. And of course, the other soldiers who were injured in that attack. There were many other soldiers who were injured uh, in Jordan in that drone attack. So we're going to kind of stay on uh, a related topic with Washington right now, which has to do with immigration and border security. That deal or framework of a deal already seems to be falling apart before it was even finalized. Greg, you and Patricia spoke to Representative Rich McCormick, who's a Republican from Sewanee, and he spoke about that matter. What did you learn from him? Yeah, well, he takes a unique stance, and I don't want to mischaracterize it, but essentially it's not worth passing anything because it won't be enforced at all. And this is part of a broader interview where we talked about why he is now siding with Donald Trump over after he initially endorsed Governor Ron DeSantis. He was one of the few few in the nation, let alone in Georgia, a few Congress members to openly endorse uh, someone other than Donald Trump. But no, his stance seems to be essentially that U.S. shouldn't really pass any sort of immigration overhaul because there's no need because, you know, the he feels like regulators and, and the White House should enforce the statutes on the books right now. And that's kind of I think we should first of all note that McCormick is a former U.S. Marine. Um, I like to um, remind our listeners will probably re- remember this. The um, the U.S. Marines recruitment commercial that was like a chessboard and there were big, larger-than-life chess pieces. Then at the very end, there's the Marine on the horse. That Marine on the horse was Rich McCormick, a young Rich McCormick in that uh, famous U.S. Marines recruitment commercial. And, um, and of course, he after he got out of the military, he was an emergency room doctor. So he does come with the experience as a veteran, but the position he's taking is the position that a lot of particularly in the House, Republicans are taking, which is no longer saying we need to pass border security legislation. It's now saying don't create new legislation. Uh, Take what's already on the books. Let's listen to a portion of that interview you and Patricia did. H2 is the answer because it it codifies what we already have as law. It enforces, it, it, it states very clearly that what Obama and Trump did is what you're supposed to do still, even though they already know that. It's not a compromise. It's, it's, it's basically saying enforce the laws that exist. I hate this. We have to completely do this. We have to do this with bureaucracies in the United States all the time because they come up with laws, quote unquote laws, that they're not allowed to do, by the way. As a bureaucracy, you're not allowed to all of a sudden create something that's a new requirement, new regulation. That's not how it works, especially when it impacts you financially. So, Bill, I'm going to get to you, but I want to make a couple of points just to contextualize what Rich McCormick just said. When he started, he mentioned H2. That's the border security legislation that House Republicans have been backing. So I do find it interesting that they passed border security legislation, but now all of a sudden they're saying we don't need new legislation. But he also says you're not allowed to, like, create laws and regulations. That's literally the point of Congress, right, to create laws. What do you think? What did you think, Bill, when you listened to Representative McCormick? 
Well, I think like most Republicans, he's got his talking points on this down pad, which is perfectly fine. I mean, Democrats have talking points as well. But in this case, uh, these talking points seem to have been dictated to Republican members of the House by Donald Trump, who has made it very clear. He's not even saying it with he's not even whispering it. He's saying it out loud. Do not pass this immigration bill that that we don't even have a final version of over in the Senate side, despite the fact bipartisan negotiations have been continuing. I he, and essentially he wants that as a campaign issue, chaos at the border as a campaign issue. And, and it is a good issue for Republicans um, because President Biden came into office with sort of mixed feelings about immigration. On one hand, he recognized there was a lot of turmoil at the border. He would have blamed much of it on the Trump administration at the time. And at the same time, he wanted to show this humane side, what America stands for. And, and so the reality is that I think most observers who are objective would say that he simply didn't do enough soon enough. He waited too long. And he's given Republicans this opening. At the same time, the fact that Donald Trump has intervened and Republicans in the House are now paying obeisance to him and saying they will not support uh, a bipartisan measure from the Senate is, is clearly very, very troubling. And one last thing, it's interesting, much different scale. You know, in 1968, President Lyndon Johnson dropped out in a shocking speech saying, I'm not running for re-election. And among the reasons he said he wasn't going to run for re-election was that he felt he wanted peace talks desperately to get started. And he felt if he was a candidate for office while peace talks got underway, it would undermine the validity of those peace talks. So he said, I'm not going to run for re-election. He had other reasons too. In October of that year, we now know that Richard Nixon, running at that point against Hubert Humphrey, worked back channels to undermine the Paris peace talks that were getting underway because he wanted Vietnam to still be a hot issue, and he won the election. I just It's a bigger, much bigger scale, but it's a very similar thing, a, a candidate interfering uh, during an election cycle. So, Tia, where do things stand right now in the immigration debate in Congress? Because we had that we have this ongoing, you know, uh, negotiations behind the scenes that seem to be unraveling before our very eyes with no progress being made. But we also have the President Biden in a remarkable moment last week, basically imploring, begging Congress to give him the power to shut down the border so he can contain the surge of, of uncontrolled immigration that Democrats are also increasingly seeing as one of their top issues uh, and we are seeing, I think, to add to that, a, a divide among Democrats, some who, who agree with the president and who want, that, want him those powers, and others who worry that if you give the president those unchecked powers, that future presidents could abuse them. Yeah, so it's such an interesting question, Greg, because so we have heard about this kind of framework of a border security deal that basically would allow the president to close the border after a certain threshold was met of migrants crossing over, which is further than any, you know, immigration policy revision in recent history. And um, 
and also changes to the parole system. And that's what Republicans, Speaker Mike Johnson has has said, you know, it's dead on arrival in the House. Don't even try it. But the Senate doesn't even have the language of the legislation. There's no bill yet. So um, the Senate kind of has been waiting for that. Um, But as we wait, what's happening in the House is the House is moving forward with impeaching Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. The Homeland Security Committee met all day yesterday. Marjorie Taylor Greene's on that committee. They voted at 1 a.m. this morning, roughly, along party lines to advance that impeachment resolution to the House floor. So that's really what's going on in the House. It's not border security legislation. It's impeaching Secretary Mayorkas. Um, I know we're running out of time. We're going to have to take a break. But, Bill, you want to make a final point before we do? Very, very very quickly, um, as the Senate tries these bipartisan negotiations, when they hear a Speaker Johnson say, we're going to have nothing to do with this. This bill is dead on arrival. It is going to raise some questions amongst Republican senators who might have been open to whatever they come up with, now thinking to themselves, why would I walk the plank to support this measure if it's dead over on the House side? Um, so that's going to be a fascinating thing to watch unfold. Absolutely. And again, as you mentioned earlier, Bill, also the fact that former President Trump, who we know is the leader of the Republican Party, the likely Republican nominee for president, has encouraged Republicans not to back a border security deal. And we know what he says carries a lot of weight. So we'll see if anything can be uh, salvaged as uh, we stay tuned. So let's take that break. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. Hip-hop is a product of Black people. It's a product of Black song. The celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents. Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from me and the rest of the AJC's politics team. Just go to AJC.com newsletters and sign up today. AJC.com newsletters. So today, Governor Kemp is going to sign the anti-Semitism bill into law. Greg, you've been covering this issue closely. How uh, significant is it that Georgia is going to have beefier anti-Semitism language in on the books? Well, this has been a years-long debate. It really stems from the entire debate over hate crimes laws. Remember, way back when, decades ago, Georgia passed hate crimes laws that were struck down by the Supreme Court of Georgia back in 2002. And since then, there's been a push to reinstate those those protections. And in 2021, lawmakers reinstated those protections. But what they didn't do was define what anti-Semitism was. So that meant essentially, if you can't, if you don't have a definition of anti-Semitism, then you can't have uh, more protections in the law, increased penalties on those who, who whose, whose crimes are motivated by anti-Semitism. So this legislation would essentially just define what anti-Semitism is. 
and include it in the state's existing hate crimes law, which allows harsher criminal penalties against those convicted of crimes if they targeted the victims based on their race, their gender, their sexual orientation, their religion, their physical or mental disability. So this has been a huge debate, Tia, in part because critics, including some Republicans and some Democrats, so it's bipartisan uh, uh, opposition, who worry that it erodes free speech rights. And particularly they worry that it will criminalize criticism of Israel itself, right? And so it's been a back and forth debate over what definitions should be used. But leadership got on board on it fairly early. And this year, we've just seen it go on a glide path. Esther Panich, the lone Jewish member of the General Assembly, told me that if it doesn't pass this year, it will not pass at all, in part because of the October 7th uh, Hamas attack against Israel that spiked, that, that triggered a spike in anti-Semitic incidents. And so as this year began, we saw Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones and other Senate leaders say, hey, we're going we're gonna to pass this because it passed the House last year. It stalled in the Senate. Very emotional debate, very tense debate, but it passed overwhelmingly in both chambers of the General Assembly. And, and Kemp immediately said, hey, I'm signing this Wednesday. Greg, I would love to know what kind of uh, event is built around this signing today. The day after uh, the bill passed, um, I said on the air that I was surprised. Governor Kemp's statement congratulating the uh, authors of the bill on signing it and passing it said nothing about an- about anti-Semitism, said nothing about hate crimes law. It was he he it was a very generic uh, statement. So is he doing something to? Uh, uh, make more of a showcase out of the importance of this measure today as he's signing it quietly? No, he's going to sign it in a capital ceremony in the second floor of the Capitol in front of a, a large crowd. I know a number of Jewish community members will be there. I'm sure there will be some critics who are there as well. But front and center, Bill, will be Esther Panich and John Carson. That is the bipartisan duo in the Georgia House that really propelled this entire uh, legislation on. John Carson is an evangelical Christian from Cobb County who had hardly stepped foot in a synagogue until a few months ago. Esther Panich is a pillar of the Jewish community in Atlanta, the only only Jewish member of the General Assembly. And you never really put the two together in terms of fighting for legislation, but they have been just, they went on a listening tour of churches and synagogues uh, all over the state. They've been pushing this left and right, you know, to whoever they can. And a lot of, a lot of, and a lot of times, you know, John Carson's very understated. Uh, Esther Panage is used to being in front of cameras. And a lot of times we've seen uh, John Carson give Esther Panage some entry into the conservative Republican world uh, to help, you know, bolster support. On the other hand, you know, we've seen, we've seen more of a split among Democrats, even though Democrats still overwhelmingly support this. We've, of course, seen a split among Democrats, especially those who worry that there's not increased protections against Islamophobia. So we've heard a lot of those critiques about the bill, too. Yeah, and I think we should also note, like, yes, the Israel-Hamas conflict really provided fuel to get more support, particularly at the legislative state legislature level. But one of the catalysts, even last year when Esther, um, when Representative Panich and others were first pushing this legislation, was the fact that there's been a lot of anti-Semitism, the flyers and the leaflets that have been anonymously distributed around Metro Atlanta. Um, Wasn't there some like projections on buildings or something? Mm -hmm. And that is where the concern rose about how can you successfully prosecute 
if you do um, find out who was responsible for some of these kind of visible signs of anti-Semitism in the community, right, Greg? Exactly. And in full disclosure, my neighborhood was targeted by those anti-Semitic flyers. Esther Panage's neighborhood was targeted by those anti-Semitic flyers. A number of local rabbis' neighborhoods were targeted by those anti-Semitic flyers. And it was a wake-up call for many in the in the Jewish community here in Metro Atlanta. But also, you know, Esther immediately reminded lawmakers that hey, anti-Semitism isn't some some you know idle threat. It is happening. There has been a spike. This, the Anti-Defamation League has, has documented, Bill, a spike in these incidences. But there are questions whether or not these laws can you know prevent this. Will will lull people into a false sense of security? But supporters say that these increased protections just add Jewish people to the list of others other minority groups who are already protected under the Georgia hate crimes law. Greg, um, the the bill that would address the flyers um, is a separate piece of legislation. It, it's one, it's essentially a littering uh, uh, measure that would, uh, could target these flyers from being distributed. That's not a separate track. Am I, am I right? Yes, that's, exactly that's right. still awaiting uh, votes. That's still awaiting votes. And believe it or not, that's modeled after a Florida law that, that cracked down on littering because you can't, you can't, you know, you can't ban free speech. And as long as there's not a specific threats, you can see those flyers as three as free speech, but, uh, but you can crack down on littering and you can crack down. And Tia mentioned this earlier. There's also been incidences of projecting laser messages, neo-Nazi. We see it in Georgia on I-75, neo-Nazi messages on a busy overpass on Interstate 75. You can take measures to block that too. You know, I feel in some ways like today, I'm sort of playing a role as a historian on the show. <laughs> uh, and let me tell you something. You know, I was the director of the Anti-Defamation League for seven years here in the Southeast, and we fought very hard to get a hate crimes law passed in Georgia. It was only one of five states in the country that didn't have one. But here's why it's of, of interest, I think, still. Um the reason it wouldn't pass is legislators were more than happy to include language uh, that talked about any number of people who are discriminated against, but they refused to take action if LGBTQ individuals were part of that legislation. Our prejudices have uh, overwhelmed in the past the hate crimes bill, so it's wonderful to see that this anti-Semitism bill actually did pass and will be signed today. Yeah, and so G Governor Kemp will sign the bill around three this afternoon. I know you'll be there, Greg. Well, no, you won't. I will not be there. You got to travel. I'll be on our, a plane. <laughs> our colleagues will be there, and so let's stay at the state capitol. Um, the Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock came down to the Capitol Tuesday to speak to lawmakers about Medicaid expansion. And our colleague Ariel Hart reports, of course, on Medicaid in the state. Georgia has dropped about half a million people from the Medicaid rolls due to some kind of changes in policy coming out of the pandemic. But there is conversation about Medicaid expansion and whether it should happen. And Greg, one of the things Warnock spoke about yesterday is the incentives that the federal government have passed and that he and Senator Ossoff have inserted into law to try to sweeten the pot yeah. for Georgia to expand Medicaid. Yeah, and those incentives were in the 2021 coronavirus relief package. And they were exactly that. They're aimed at, at kind of trying to 
lessen the concerns of Republicans who thought that in the long term, expanding Medicaid in Georgia would be too costly. And now we've seen 40 states already do that, including many Republican-run states. Uh, but Tia, we use that as an exam- as an opportunity in this morning's PGAM newsletter, Politically Georgia AM newsletter, to give a sort of status check on where Medicaid expansion is in Georgia. And there's still huge questions about whether or not Republican leaders will move forward. And the biggest one, I think, is where's the bill? We heard Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones say to me a couple of days ago, there's rumors, nothing concrete. The House is going to come up with a proposal. I checked in with some House leaders who said, we're working on it, but nothing is nothing is immediate. But, you know, it's hard to have any substantive debate over Medicaid expansion. We're in almost a third of the way into the session without a bill. And Bill, I want to bring you in. But first, Greg, I want to ask, how was Warnock received yesterday? I mean, Republicans have a supermajority, but I saw some pictures. It looks like they were pretty welcoming and respectful as a U.S. senator coming on the floor. But do they seem open to him at all or are they just kind of being respectful? Yeah, it was very respectful. There was a very warm response. And, and lawmakers are used to this. You know, the Republican lawmakers come in, can, from Congress, come and speak to the Georgia General Assembly as well. And so there's always a, a, there's always a, a warm reception. And there's also a very emotional prayer, too, that he led. Um, in the chambers. Um, but, you know, his message was was, was not nuanced. <laughs> he said, guys, it's time to expand Medicaid. Uh, this is a, bi- in his view, it's a bipartisan effort that Republican, and he said he was heartened to see Republicans and Democrats actually starting to talk about it for the first time. And we've said this on the show before. It's the first time in more than a decade we've seen serious conversation. We don't know if it will happen, but serious conversations towards that happening. Bill? Greg, I assume that uh, the Senator Reverend did not pay a courtesy call on Governor Kemp, or did he? <laughs> you know, that's a good question. He might have. Um, okay. and, and those two have a, have a good working relationship, you know? Um, for, for any governor of a, of, a, of a, any Republican governor, you need entrees into the, to the Democratic White House. And for a little while, it was John Ossoff. And, and I, I'm told that they have a much a, a better relationship now that the election is behind both of them in 2022. So I, I'm told that Senator Warnock and Governor Kemp do have a good working relationship. Oh, okay. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And so, again, I want to get back to um, to your point, Bill, when Governor Kemp has talked about Medicaid expansion, he often, we know he has his own program that he's tried. It has some work requirements. It's not getting the traction that more traditional Medicaid expansion has received in other states. Um, Greg, is he, he, but he's not yet saying I'm ready to pivot. He's not yet ready to call it quits on his Medicaid plan, right? Yeah, his his aides have been quietly reaching out to state lawmakers recently. And basically, this is according to several state lawmakers who told me about these conversations, basically saying, hey, I'm not a fan of this idea. And and it requires legislative approval, but he has he gets the si- final sign off. He's not a fan. You know, he's been railing against Medicaid expansion for more than a decade, so it's hard to kind of do that quick turnabout. But at the same time, he is not saying whether he would veto it or not. So he's leaving that open. And Tia, it would be really hard to see him veto a Medicaid expansion if it passes both chambers of the General Assembly with Republican support, which we would have to pass with. So it, he's leaving that open, but it's really hard to see him rejecting it. Bill, I keep saying it's not 
if, it's when, but do you think this year might be the win? Well, the Arkansas model, which is one that it's on the table that they're looking at very seriously, might be the answer because what they've done in Arkansas is you still buy private insurance on the Obamacare exchanges, but it's subsidized uh, by federal dollars. That could be more palatable, possibly, uh, than just an outright Medicaid ex- uh, full expansion. We don't know yet. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown. The Trump indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This podcast is part of the mission of the AJC to be the most essential and engaging source of news for the people of Atlanta, of Georgia, and of the South. Stay up to date every day on breaking news, in-depth investigations, politics, sports, entertainment, food and dining, and so much more by becoming a subscriber to the AJC. Go to AJC.com start for a very special offer and unlock hundreds of original articles published daily on the refreshed AJC.com in the new AJC mobile app. Plus, you'll have access to our news alerts, subscriber-only events, AJC original shows, films and videos, newsletters, podcasts, and so much more. That's AJC.com slash start. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the substance and soul of the South. So guys, the Fair Fight Political and Advocacy Organization that Stacey Abrams founded is laying off staffers and narrowing its mission as it struggles with mounting debt from lengthy court battles over voting rights. Greg, I'm going to start with you because you've been following this. You've been writing about this. You, um, I think you got an assist from James Salzer. Um, how much of this is poor management of funds? How much of this is just they've been doing all these cases and are running out of money? And how much is this because Stacey Abrams isn't the it girl anymore and she's not able to raise more money? The it girl anymore. I like that. Um, I think it's a, a, a mix of all three of those and a couple other factors. I mean, to say that Fair Fight was a financial juggernaut is an understatement. They were they raised more than $100 million after Stacey Abrams started the group in, in 2018 after she lost the her first race for governor. They raised more than $100 million in just a couple of years. They raised so much money that Republicans, Governor Kemp and then-Senator Kelly Leffler, both felt like they had to respond uh, and and create their own political networks and change the law, basically, so that Kemp could raise unlimited cash from supporters to keep up with Fair Fight. So it changed the political scene in Georgia. And it operated sort of as a shadow political organization for Stacey Abrams as she was planning her comeback bid, her her rematch against Governor Kemp. I mean, they funded millions of dollars worth of TV ads going after Kemp and his priorities and other Republican priorities. And so a huge, and then of course, there's all the work they did in ex- trying to fight to expand voting rights to what they call voter protection to ensure that Georgians uh, aren't, aren't blocked at the ballot and to wage these courtroom battles. But we're talking, you know, 
millions and millions of dollars were spent on these lengthy court battles uh, over over these years. $13.2 million just on media services, uh, $25 million on legal fees. Uh, so we're talking an extraordinary amount of money was spent on courtroom battles that for Fair Fight were unsuccessful. They lost two of the biggest courtroom battles recently and, and were even forced to pay back some of the legal fees uh, to the to those they challenged by a federal judge, Tia. So, so those legal bills rack up and they are about 400,000 or so dollars, uh, no, 600,000 or so dollars in the red, $2.5 million in debt with only $1.9 million in cash in the bank. So Bill, we wrote, Greg wrote that Lauren Grow-Wargo who was with the, she's a longtime Stacey Abrams advisor and confidant. And she was with Fair Fight Action in the beginning, left in 2021 to manage Abrams' unsuccessful campaign for governor. But she's going back to the organization kind of to help steer the ship in this kind of time of need. What do you make of the drama at Fair Fight Action? Or is it drama in your opinion, or is it just the ebb and flow of a political um, organization. Uh, oh, I think that's a great question. It is drama. Uh, as Greg pointed out, Stacey Abrams was a fundraising machine for so long. She became one of the most important figures in democratic politics nationally. Um, the court cases that they launched and lost were disastrous for them. Um, and Greg, I'm interested in the fact that they're bringing back Lauren, um, who was, you know, I think we would probably agree in in many instances is a pretty smart political, has a good political brain. But my recollection, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, is the campaign in 2022 also uh, was shown to have uh, just spent untold profligate spending on the ads you're talking about. And despite the enormous amounts of money that the campaign raised, in the last weeks, they had little left in the bank. So it suggests that, <laughs> that the organization, whether it's the political organization uh, uh, in the campaign, whether it's the organization fighting uh, court battles, it may not have the, the best minds overseeing their finances. Yeah. And Greg, I just want to note that, um, you know, Bill said drama. I didn't want to put words in your mouth, Bill. I would also characterize it as drama. And there's been kind of a trickling of bad news. There have been national media outlets. Of course, the AJC has written a lot about the debt, all the losses that Fair Fight has had in the courtroom. Um, what are, What is your take? Yeah, and, and to both your points, I and mean, there was there were a lot of questions about Stacey Abrams spending, and we no, we haven't seen candidates raise them, you know, for governor raise that court sort of cash, and so near the end of her campaign, Stacey Abrams' cash machine was running dry, and they hardly had any enough money to to make the expensive ad buys you usually see in the in the final push to the campaign. Now there are similar questions raised about her 2018 campaign. Uh, whether or not it was spending money too quickly, but then she that was the that was the campaign she emerged this fundraising, you know, juggernaut. That was the campaign where she really started raising the cash and put put those doubts to to rest. But in 2022, you know, with the spending, they were spending on uh, what we what we what we were told was a TikTok house. There was just a lot of money being spent in different ways that many of her supporters started to question at the end of the race. Would it have mattered? She lost by seven points, probably not. But with a with a with a campaign with that much money, when you're running dry on cash at the very end, it does raise serious questions. 
Do you think, Greg, as someone who's followed Stacey Abrams for so many years, um, some of this was having the wrong people? Um, particularly, again, we talk about her campaigns, but also at Fair Fight Action, there was concerns that she hired kind of people she was close to, as opposed to, to Bill's point, people who actually had the expertise. Yeah, and she's very loyal. And the story of how she how she connected with Lauren Groh-Wargo is just fascinating because uh, I, I've been told a couple different versions, but basically they they essentially met like a, almost on a cold call, right? And they immediately became very close friends. And Lauren Groh-Wargo was working in Ohio and moved her entire life here in Georgia to, to, to come and kind of set the stage for Stacey Abrams' run. So they're very close friends. They're very loyal to each other. Um, you know, they, they, they kind of speak for each other sometimes. Um, uh, but you know, she also ran two campaigns that were unsuccessful. And, uh, I, w- I would also add that there was a lot of, a ton of voices in that room, right? You're with a campaign that big, she probably had dozens and dozens of consultants. Yeah. So listen, we're going to, of course, stay tuned to that. Stacey Abrams is still quite frankly, she's still a big boogeyman on the right, despite <laughs> all of her troubles um, with her political organization. So in our final few minutes, I want to get to one more story. And that's about... We got a chock Fulton. full schedule, Tia. Yeah, we do. <laughs> we're packed. You guys loaded me up today. Um, Fulton County Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade has reached a temporary divorce agreement um, with his estranged wife, And that cancels a public hearing, at least temporarily, that was supposed to happen today, where we thought Wade was going to be forced to answer questions about the nature of his relationship with Fulton District Attorney Fonnie Willis. But again, that is on hold, at least for today. What did you make, Greg, of that news that um, that divorce is being at least for now, it looks like there's the framework of an agreement that could avoid some of this drama. Yeah, exactly. It's a temporary agreement. So it might be just a temporary reprieve, but it is, uh, you know, in a sense a victory for Nathan Wade and, and, and Fannie Willis, because it leaves unanswered that major question uh, about whether they had a relationship, which we still haven't seen a, a full answer to either in court or out here in the public, the court of public opinion, I guess you could call it. Um, and so, so that's still outstanding, but I will add that there is a legal deadline, you know, bearing up on us on Friday for Fannie Willis to answer this legal court motion that Mike Roman, one of the co-defendants in the election interference case, his attorneys filed a few weeks ago. So fairly quickly, we will have at least a legal opinion that we've been waiting for, the legal answer we've been waiting for, for Fannie Willis trying to answer these allegations of misconduct between her and Nathan Wade. And and that's an important point because now the cat's out of the bag. Like if that divorce had been kept under seal and um, which now even the seal is being lifted uh, of those divorce mm-hmm. documents. So even though there's a, in a temporary settlement now, the allegations are public and you can't unring that bell. So Greg, you're right that in the now in the Trump case, the RICO case, um, there are defendants who are saying, hey, we got this information. We still want Fonnie Willis to explain herself. And like you said, she's got to submit some documents soon. And then there's still a hearing by Fulton County Superior Court Judge Scott McAfee scheduled for February 15th. 
that's still on as well. Yeah, and, and going back to that, look, we've talked about this on the show before. Legal experts doubt, many of them at least doubt, there's there's any sort of issue that this this alleged misconduct could 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 do, you know, any sort of lasting damage it could do in the in the courtroom to this case. But of course, there's the Trump-driven narrative that there's that this is a politicized prosecution and and all that that this has hurt the optics of the case. And even we've heard plenty from some Democrats, even some of Fannie Willis's chief supporters who've raised those concerns. And, and, and look, the issue is not as much whether they had a relationship, it's whether or not she is steering you know, certain contracts, if they're, if they're in, in the words of the critics, overpaying Nathan Wade, especially compared to other special prosecutors. But Tia, what was so interesting about our show this week is we just had Mike Isikoff and Daniel Clydman, who wrote the book, Find Me the Votes, on this case yesterday, uh, on the show yesterday, in the book published this week, saying, hey, remember, Nathan Wade was not the first choice for Fonnie Willis. It was actually Roy Barnes and another veteran criminal defense attorney who both turned down this job. Right. And Fonnie Willis has said she's had a long-standing relationship and trust, and that's why he was hired. But we'll see what comes out in court. Listen, that's all the time we have for today. But I want to let you know, if you have a question, get it into our mailbag, Politically Georgia call-in hotline. That number is 404-526-2527. We want to hear from you. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live weekday mornings at 10 on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta. Or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.